The following message was recorded Sunday, November 5, 2023. Pastor Ritt finishes his teaching on what God is doing in Israel and what the future holds. Today Pastor Ritt covers Zechariah chapter 14. And now, here's Pastor Ritt. Well, this morning we're back in, where? Zechariah, Zechariah. We've been going through Zechariah 12, 13, and 14. Why? Because I want you to know what's really happening here. As we go through the text in Zechariah, we went through chapter 12 and we finished chapter 13 last week. So this morning we're going to cover chapter 14 and hopefully we're going to get through the chapter. But in chapter 12, we saw it was the physical restoration of Israel. Then it was the spiritual restoration or salvation of Israel. As we got into chapter 13, we saw that all of the nations of the world will come against Israel. There'll be false prophets in that day. But we also saw that there's a time of trouble coming that was never had been before, nor will ever be again. Jesus quotes that in Matthew's gospel in the apocalyptic literature of Matthew 24, Luke 13, uh, Luke 21, Mark 13. And this time of trouble will be the worst for Israel in its history. Ever before, or will ever be again. And how many of the Jews will be killed at that time? Two-thirds. Two-thirds. And we said that in 2021, the population of Jewry throughout the world was 15.2 million. So it's probably somewhere around there now, maybe 16 million. So if two-thirds were going to be killed today, how many would that be? No less than 10 million Jews are going to be killed. The worst is yet to come for Israel. We'll talk more about that tonight. And I'll give you my reasons why. But most people aren't talking about that. They're not sharing with folks the truth of what is taking place and what the configuration of things that are coming about. But as we got into chapter 13, we saw that the shepherd was was crucified. In verse 7, it says, A weight goes sword against my shepherd, against the man who is my companion. He's talking about Jesus Christ being crucified. And it says, Strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. And that's exactly what happened to all the apostles, remember? They all ran for their lives, ran for the hills, except one. We talked about that, right? There was the one. There's the multitude that Jesus would minister to, the fish and chips crowd. You know, he gave the fed the 5,000 men besides women and children. And then from there, there was the 70, sent out 35 evangelistic teams, two by two, to share the gospel, the good news. And then from the 35, he chose the uh, 70, he chose the 12, the 12 apostles. He prayed all night long, and he selected the 12 that they might be with him, with him. And his name should be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Are you with him? He wants to be with you. That's the question. He wants to be with you. Are you really with him? And then from the 12, he selected the three, three. Peter, James, and John saw things that none of the others ever experienced with Jesus. And then from the three, there was the one, one. Now, I'd like to be one of those privileged ones, wouldn't you? Where Jesus reveals all that's going to take place. He doesn't want it to be a mystery. He doesn't want us to be ignorant of these things. He's a good father. As I was a good father and explained to my son the things that he needs to prepare himself for, Jesus wants to prepare us for the things that are coming if we're listening. For he who has an ear to hear, let him hear. And John, John saw things that none of the others would ever see. When Jesus was prophesying Peter's death, Peter said, what about the boy? What about him? And Jesus said, what is it to you, Peter, if he remains until I come? 
And so all the church believed that John was going to see the second coming of Christ before he died. Did he? Yes, he did. He saw it in the Revelation. When he was cracking, cracking rocks at Patmos, on the Isle of Patmos, Jesus revealed him exactly what was going to take place in the apocalypse, the unveiling of Christ and the coming in his glory. Things that no man had ever seen. Wow. Well, I think that he wants to reveal some things to us even now today that are going to be taking place. But like John, you need to experience some isolation from the world and from the cares of this world and all the other things that are going on in this temporal, earthly, physical existence. And get away so that he can get your attention and begin to speak to your heart. Strengthen your spirit and your mind. Amen? Yeah, very, very important, beloved, that you have a time where you're being, reading the word of God, let the God, Lord, Lord minister to you through his word, and then meditate on what you're reading. Oh, so often we just do our devotional 15 minutes and away we go and forget what we've read and never allow the Lord to really speak to us and speak to our hearts. Well, we saw that the worst is yet to come for Israel. And it shall come to pass, verse 8, in the land, says the Lord, that two-thirds of it shall be cut off and die. One-third shall be left in it, and I will bring one-third through the fire, and I will refine them as silver is refined, test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name, and I will answer them, and I will say, this is my people. And each one will say, the Lord is my God. Now, this will be the spiritual awakening of Israel. We're going to talk about the Feast of Israel again in a little while. But the seven major feasts of Israel are all commemorating God did on behalf of Israel in the wilderness through Moses, the miracles that he performed. The way Emmanuel was with them, with them through that wilderness wandering. But each one of them are anticipatory of something as God is going to do in the future through the person of his son, Jesus Christ. Now, if you've been here any length of time, you know all of this. And the first feast, as described in Leviticus 23, that is prophetic, that is implied that is going to be fulfilled in Christ, is which? Passover. And Passover was fulfilled. And the next feast in the spring of the year, in the month of Nisan, was which? The feast of unleavened bread. And unleavened bread was filled on the very day by Christ alone. He fulfilled Passover on the very day. He fulfilled unleavened bread on the very day. And the third feast in the spring of the year, in the month? Nisan? First fruit. And what happened on this feast of first fruits? Up from the grave he arose. Huh? Hallelujah. That's what happened. Now, he literally fulfilled those three first feasts on the very day. What a coincidence. No? No. In the month of Saivan, 50 days later, there's another feast. And which feast was that? Pentecost. Feast of Revelation. Right? And that was fulfilled on the very day Luke records for us in Acts chapter 2 as we were going through Acts that when Pentecost had fully come, when Pentecost had been fulfilled, the Feast of Revelation. They commemorate the giving of the law. But what happened when the law was received by Moses there on Mount Sinai on the Mount of God? 3,000? Oh, but Jesus talks about the reception of the Holy Spirit that would come on Pentecost. When, what was birthed on Pentecost? Messianic Judaism. Make no mistake about that. The Messiah. The, the truth of who Jesus really is. The Messiah of Israel. Right? That's what was birthed on Pentecost. And it also involves us, doesn't it? Why? Because we're now one new man. One new people. What was the mystery in the New Testament? 
Not understood in the Old Testament that Jews and Gentiles would make up one body, one new man. Wow. And that was fulfilled at Pentecost. Remember the two law offerings at Pentecost? They offered two law offerings, and each of them had what in it? What? Leaven? Oh, my. Ridiculous. Preposterous. Unheard of. Leaven? What's leaven a type of? Oh, the only time in all of the offerings, and all of the feasts, all of the grain offerings that we offer to God, they offer them with leaven. Why? Because we come to him just as we are. Jew, Gentile, two loaves. Leaven, sin. I can't clean myself up. I come to him in my sin asking him to clean me up, right? And those first four feasts were literally fulfilled on the very day. The next three feasts are in the fall of the year in the Jewish month of what? Tishri. Tishri. What's the first feast? What is it? Trumpets. Yom Terah, Feast of Trumpets. What's going to happen on the Feast of Trumpets? I'm jumping off the earth. I believe that there's a, there's a reason to believe. Scriptural evidence to believe that the rapture of the church will occur. All, three, all these Three feasts in the fall of the year all deal with the second coming of Christ, so the day of the Lord. When does the day of the Lord begin? The rapture of the church, and I believe that's going to be the Feast of Trumpets. When does the day of the Lord end? At the end of the millennial reign of Christ, at the end of the fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles, the last feast of the year. But sandwiched between trumpets and tabernacles is which? Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And that's when Israel's eyes will be opened to who Jesus really is. That's when there'll be the spiritual awakening. That's when Zechariah 12, where the spirit of supplication and grace falls upon the Jewish people, and they will look upon him and they will mourn. Where did you get these wounds in your hands? But in the house of my friend. And we talked at length about that. But that last feast, now these last three feasts all have to do with the second coming, and they're all going to be fulfilled on the very day, not in the same year necessarily, but on the very day that they're celebrated, because all of them are anticipatory of something that Jesus is going to do very very soon. Yeah. Aren't you excited? Yeah. Well, yes, they'll be refined as silver is refined. They'll be tested as gold is tested, and they shall call upon my name when Yom Kippur, when the Feast of Atonement is really fulfilled. And then I will answer them and say, this is my people, and each of them will say, the Lord is my God. And we talked about this at length last time. We went to Isaiah 63, and there's so many prophecies within the Old Testament of spiritual Israel, Israel being awakened spiritually and renewed. That's yet to take place. I, you know, I'm just disapp- so disappointed, so grieved by so many New Testament scholars who don't understand the Israelology of the Bible and believe that God is completely done with Israel. Nonsense. Nothing could be farther from the truth. But, but they're so caught up with themselves and their own limited Christology that they don't see the significance of Israel. Israel has promised to be a dominant nation among the nations of the world. Again, you understand that? Oh, but before that takes place, there's a great suffering. A great suffering that the Jewish people will experience, which will pale in comparison to October 7th. You understand that? I'll share more about that tonight. But behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst. Now, this day of the Lord begins with the rapture of the church. As I said, it ends with the end of the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. So it's a uh, thousand plus years, this day of the Lord. Someone texted me the other day and asked me if Zephaniah deals with the second coming of Jesus Christ, the day of the Lord. Of course it does. Turn with me to Zephaniah for a moment, chapter 1. 
If you're here this morning, I'm answering your question. That's one of those minor prophets. Why is he minor? Because he's not important and insignificant? No, because it's small writing, that's all. You're in Zechariah, you go to Haggai, then you go over to Zach, um, Zephaniah. We're chapter 1, chapter 1 is Zephaniah, you see it? Everybody there? Take your time, if you're there, look up. I love that sound. Don't you love that sound? I love that sound of pages of the Bible being turned. So many today have no working knowledge of the scriptures they say they believe. And you know, you've got to be careful. If all you're doing is reading your, the Bible through your app, you don't really have a working knowledge of scripture. You don't know where one book is from the other in all 66 books of the scriptures. They're all integrated. They all dovetail. They all fit. But, but so many have no real working knowledge of the scriptures. It's amazing. And what if, what if you had no access to these electronic helpers any longer. Do you really have a working knowledge of the scripture? Do you have the Bible in your lap? Are you able to turn to Zephaniah? Hmm. Interesting. Anyway, chapter 1, let's look at uh, the question was, is Zephaniah dealing with the second coming of the day of the Lord? Well, look at verse 14. What does it say? The great day of the Lord. Yeah. Now, if the great day of the Lord was near in Zephaniah's day, how near do you think it is now? Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah, in, Zeph in Zephaniah's day, it was weeks away. In our day, it is moments away. Moments. The great day of the Lord is near. It is near and it hastens quickly. The noise of the day of the Lord is bitter. And the mighty men shall cry out in the day. Uh, excuse me. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of devastation and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick clouds, a day of trumpet and alarm against the fortified cities and against the high towers, and I will bring distress upon men, and they shall walk like blind men because they have sinned against the Lord, and their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like refuse. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath. For the whole land shall be devoured by the fire of his jealousy. For he will make a speedy radiance of all those who dwell in the land. This is a day of the Lord coming to take vengeance upon those who would persecute his people, Israel and the body of Christ, the church. Make no mistake about that. Back to Zechariah. So if that answers your question, yes, it deals with the second coming. Verse 1 of chapter 14 of Zechariah, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming. Your spoil will be divided in the midst, and I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. Make no mistake about it, the anti-Semitism that is growing worldwide I don't know how much you've paid attention to all of the protests that have begun all over the world and all over this country. Demonic forces have taken hold of all of the academic institutions in the United States. If you send your children to college and you spend thousands of dollars on their tuition, it's only to get them brainwashed, to believe that everything you stand for is hateful and should be fought against. You understand that? 
And make no mistake about it, this is a spiritual battle. It's a battle between light and darkness. It's a battle between good and evil. It's a battle between God and Satan. All nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, the woman ravaged. Half the city shall go into captivity. But the remnant of my people shall not be cut off from that city. Now, we talked briefly about that last week when we were looking at Isaiah 63, when he who comes from Bozrah with dyed garments. Where's Bozrah? Petra. Petra, the rock city of Petra. Now, who's going to flee to the rock city of Petra, that ancient Edomite fortress? One third of the Jews are going to be saved. They're going to be preserved. This is the remnant he's talking about. Half of the city goes into captivity. I wonder, could that possibly be the solution that everybody is demanding? What's that solution to the Palestinian-Israeli problem? Two-state solution. What would happen to Jerusalem? They'd be cut in half. It's national suicide for Israel to agree to that. Just as Israel cannot agree to a ceasefire or this temporary pause to allow the enemies of Israel to regroup, to arm themselves again. No, 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 no. But the world's thinking is so upside down. Right is wrong, wrong is right, up is down, down is up, left is right, left is right is left. I mean, it's just insane, isn't it? Could it be? Hmm. Half the city goes into captivity. But the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. The Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. What battle is he talking about? Go to Numbers 21 for a minute. Number 21. When did the Lord fight? There's several books that the Bible represents, represents and references. The book of life. Which one is that? That's where our names are written in. Is your name written in the book of life? When was your name written in the book of life? Before, yeah, before you were twinkling your father's eye, before the foundation that ever, worked, ever came into existence, God knew you, God called you, God chose you, God wrote your name. In his book of life. There's several books that the Bible talks about. And here in Numbers 21, what book are they talking about? In verse 14 in particular. Therefore, it is said in the book of the wars of the Lord. Hmm. That's an interesting phrase. We don't know much about this book, the book of the wars of the Lord. We know several wars that God fought for Israel on behalf of Israel. You know. The angel of his presence. Right? We referenced that last week. He talked about the angel of the Lord defending them. We talk about the angel of the Lord and his presence when Pharaoh's army was coming across the Red Sea on dry land. What happened? God alone. How did I say, but oh, took out the army, right? Hmm. When the Assyrians went, circled Jerusalem, and Hezekiah went into the temple of the Lord, and he said, Lord, this, they're addressing you, not us, Lord. You're, you have to defend your great name. And he sent one angel, the presence of the angel of the Lord, one angel, one night, 185,000 Assyrians were dead. Joshua going in to conquer, right? Joshua chapter 5. Remember, Joshua, Moses is now gone, and Joshua's alone, and he's to lead the children of Israel in, into the promised land. Now, remember, the promised land is not heaven. Why? Why? There's battles to fight. 
When Joshua crosses over, there's battles that Joshua has to fight. Are there any battles that we're going to have to fight in heaven? No, nay, heaven wouldn't be heaven if there were, right? But that night, Joshua can't sleep, and so he's walking around the tent, you know, unsettled, and suddenly he sees somebody there. Halt! Who goes there? Identify yourself forthwith. Are you with us, or are you for our adversary? And what was the response? What was it? Neither. But you know what the response was, really, in the Hebrew text? I am. Ooh, wow. That must have shocked him. What did that mean? It was Jesus. It was a theophany. It was a vision of Christ. And, when, and Christ went on to tell him that Joshua would defeat all of the enemies of God because God was going to fight for them. The battle of the war. Hmm. But what battle is Zechariah talking about in the wars of the Lord? Go with Psalm chapter 2 for a moment. What a glorious psalm this is, particularly in the time and day we're in right now. Psalm 2. Anybody have a title for Psalm 2? I'm sorry, a little louder, please. Victory in the face of defeat. Anybody else? The Messiah's triumph and kingdom. Anybody else? The reign of the Lord. So this all has to do with the fact of, of Christ coming back in the day of the Lord, the second coming of Christ, where he's going to reign and establish his millennial kingdom on earth. But as you go through the text, you realize whom is speaking to whom? It's the Trinity speaking to one another. It's the Father, it's the Son, it's the Holy Spirit. Wondering how it is that the world could be so bewitched, so beside themselves, that they would fight against the Lord. Isn't that amazing? Now we'll talk more about that as we get into chapter 14 a little bit further. But look at this. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot a vain thing? For the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against Jehovah, and against his anointed, against the Messiah. Wow. Don't you find that amazing? You know, the Bible tells us in Revelation that when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back with the saints, who are they? Dozens. When we come back with the Lord, you know, you're coming back from the dead? Well, we never died. They think we did, but we didn't. Yeah. They think it's a zombie army. <laughs> but we don't fight, do we? No, he who is on that white horse, he does all the fighting, right? Oh, but when he comes back, all the armies of the world that have gathered together there in the plains of Ezron, the Jezreel Valley, they all surrender to Jesus, don't they? Is that what they do? And what do they do? What do they do? How can, you, how can you kill somebody who came back from the dead? How insane is that? How demonic? How twisted? But that's precisely what they're saying here. How do the nations rage? Who's bewitched them? How can they possibly think? They could plot these vain things. The kings of the earth set themselves. The rulers take counsel against Jehovah and against the anointed, the Messiah. Let us break their bonds. The halter, literally, cast away their cords. A lead rope. You know, it's so sweet and simple when we live life allowing the Lord to lead us through his Holy Spirit and through his word. Isn't it? Life becomes so simple, sweetly simple. Just do things according to the book. That's the, the halter, 
and the lead rope, where he wants to lead us. But they're going to break that. You'll, we'll not have this man rule over us. Who said that? The Jews, when they were going to crucify Christ, right? Hmm. Yes, we'll break the bonds in pieces. Cast away the cords from us. He who sits in the heaven shall... <laughs> he laughed like this. It's just ridiculous. He laughs in ridicule and scorn, mocking them. How preposterous. The Lord shall hold them in derision and ridicule. And then he shall speak to them in his wrath. And distress them in his deep displeasure, his literally burning anger. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill in Zion. Who's that? The rejected cornerstone, Jesus. Yeah. The Messiah whom they rejected. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Keeping the Davidic covenant that he made in 2 Samuel, right? Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. The ends of the earth for your possession. Oh, wow. And we're joining us with Christ, aren't we? Yeah. All that is his is ours as well now. We are more than conquerors. Why? Because we didn't have to fight for it. He did. We just enjoy the prize, the inheritance. Yes, you shall break them, the Messiah, shall break them with a rod of iron. It's a, it's a punishment stick, but this isn't a stick. This is a rod of iron. It's meant not just to punish, but to destroy. Yes. With that rod of iron, you shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Who are they them? The, the nations of the world, the Gentile nations of the world, they're going to come against Christ. The enemy of my enemy is my... Israel has done in the last few weeks what Allah has not been able to do in Islam for the last 700 years or whatever, how long ever it's been. And what is that? I'll tell you tonight. Verse 10, now, therefore, be wise, O kings, be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun. That's worship, isn't it? Yeah. Proskunos, worship, to turn towards and to kiss, to show your love. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are those who put their trust in him. All of this we see is fulfilled and what is declared in the Revelation. In the book of Revelation, the first couple of chapters deal with the vision of Christ that John sees in 2 and 3. He talks to the message to the seven churches. As we get into chapter 4, he's before the throne of God. Chapter 5, he takes the scroll, the title deed to the earth. And from chapter 5 to chapter 19, what's happening? His rod of iron is crushing the nations. Chapter 5 to chapter 19, it's the judgment of the Gentiles. It's the judgment of the world for its rejection, worldwide rejection of Christ, of Israel, of the truth. Hmm? Back to Zechariah, chapter 14. Verse 3, then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations, all the nations of the earth, as he fights in the day of battle. Verse 4, and in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. 
And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a large valley. Half of the mountain shall be moved to the north. Half of the mountain shall be moved to the south. Revelation declares to us that there's going to be a mega earthquake, a great earthquake that's going to occur. When does that occur? When Jesus Christ touches down on planet Earth? You mean, wait a minute. Are you saying that Jesus is actually, literally, physically going to come back to earth? Yes. yes. Most people don't believe that. I had a woman who was sitting in a Bible study I was doing in New York, and she had been teaching Sunday school for forever. And I was teaching on the eschatology of the Bible, and I was teaching on the second coming of Christ, and she was absolutely shocked. She was from a Dutch Reformed uh, faith, which embraces covenant theology, which has no understanding of the Israelology of the Bible, nor does it have a proper eschatology. But she said to me, are you trying to say, are you trying to say that Jesus is literally going to return to the planet? Is that what you're saying? Yes, that's exactly. No, I said, no, I'm not saying that. that's what the Bible says. And the Bible says, so I believe it. She thought it was preposterous, ridiculous. Never came back. Interesting. Is he coming back? Yes. And he's actually going to step foot on planet Earth. And when he steps on the Mount of Olives, what happened to the Mount of Olives? I'm sorry? But what happened previously at the Mount of Olives? He ascended. That's right, Ed. He ascended into heaven from the Mount of Olives. And he's going to return on the Mount of Olives, isn't he? Wow. Zechariah, chapter 11, sees the Spirit of God, the Ruach HaGodesh, right, leave the temple. And where does he leave from? Where does he ascend from after he leaves the temple, the Holy of Holies, the holy place, the threshold, the east gate? Where does he leave from? The Mount of Olives. And the Holy Spirit will return. The Mount of Olives. Just prior to 586 B.C. is when the Spirit of God left Israel. When did it return? He, the Spirit. With Christ's return, when Christ made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. That's when, how many millennium was that? How many years was that? And Israel was going to temple every single week, believing they were in the house of God and God wasn't in the house. How many people gathered together every Sunday believing they were in the house of God and God's not in the house? So important that you, make, that you know that you know that you know that the Holy Spirit has made your life, your heart, his dwelling place. Never to leave you nor forsake you. I'll be with you even unto the end of Zechariah. <laughs> end of the age. Hmm? Yes, the Mount of Olives will split in two from the east to the west, from the Mediterranean to the, to the Dead Sea. You know, there's a fault that runs there now. You know, David, you're a geologist. You ever look into that at all? No. There's a fault that runs right through that area. A fault, you know, is, is what's happening underneath that fault? How would you explain that? It's what? Okay, two plates, but what would you describe what's happening? There's what? What's going on there? Tension, friction, pressure, stress. Wow. Think about all the tension, pressure, stress that exists right now with regard to the one city that God declared his own, Jerusalem. Physically representing what is happening, geopolitically and spiritually. Oh, but it's going to split open, isn't it? Yeah. 
precisely what he's predicting here at the second coming, this mega earthquake. The mountain shall be split from the east to the west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall be moved towards the north, half of the mountain towards the south, and then you shall flee through the mountain valley, for the mountain valley shall reach to Aziel. Yes, you shall flee as you fled in the days of the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah. When was that earthquake? In the days of Uzziah. Where do you find that in the Bible? <laughs> where do you read about that mega earthquake in the Old Testament? You don't. But what did Uzziah do that God had to judge him for? And the priests had to throw him out of the temple. He was a king. He wasn't a priest. And what was he trying to do? Yeah, Offer sacrifice. He was offering Saul made the same mistake, remember? King Saul? Uzziah was offering sacrifice on the Lord, and the priests had to throw him out of the temple and to show God's displeasure when they threw him out of the temple. One of the Jewish historians records for us that at that precise moment, there was a great earthquake in Israel, in Jerusalem. You ever heard of Josephus? Yeah, Josephus records that for us. That ancient Israel recorded. That's very significant. So when Zechariah declares this to them, they knew exactly what he was talking about. God's going to show his displeasure, not for Uzziah, but for the world with this mega earthquake. One of the signs of the last days will be what? Earthquakes in various places throughout the world. What happened this week? Where was there an earthquake a couple of days ago? Nepal. Before that? Afghanistan. You understand, things are getting shaken up. We're very close. And in Mexico, too, yeah. Very close, beloved. All of the signs are coming together. Hmm? Thus says the Lord, thus the Lord my God will come with all of the saints. Now, that's the actual second coming, isn't it? Someone asked me, is are we seeing the beginning of the War of Armageddon? Are we? No. The War of Armageddon happens at the end, at the very end. The rapture has already occurred. Israel has been awakened spiritually. All of the nations of the world have gathered together against Israel and against the Christ, the Messiah. And then he comes, and he comes with all of the saints. And where's that recorded for us? In Revelation chapter 19. Turn there. Revelation 19. If spiritual Babylon and, and, and economic or physical Babylon are destroyed in chapters 18, 17 and 18, who's Babylon? Who's the great whore? A lot of mumbling out there. We don't know for certain, but I, my conjecture is it's us. It's the United States. The United States is the great whore of Babylon. Now, the, the whore is described spiritually and she's described uh, physically. She's an economic leader of the world. She's destroyed. Uh, but after the destruction of Babylon, that whore, the harlot, uh, Jesus Christ will return. Chapter 19, look there.
Christ, heaven, the church, exalted Israel over Babylon. Look at verse 11 of chapter 19. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judged the nations and makes war. Now there's a rider on a white horse in the beginning of Revelation. Who was that? The Antichrist, the false Christ. He was riding a white horse, but he was coming to make war on the earth. Hmm? Jesus is coming to make war against the nations that are fought against him. Yes, and he who sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he makes, he judges and makes war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no one except himself knew. He was clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name was called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Who are they? Hallelujah. You like horseback riding? Well, you will then. <laughs> now, verse 15, out of his mouth goes a sharp sword. What's that? The word of God. That with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. And he has a, on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And how are they judged? By the word of God. How will we be rewarded? Based upon your faithfulness and your obedience to the word of God. You won't be judged. Satans aren't judged. Saint, saints are not judged. There is therefore now no for those in. But we get rewards. You want some rewards? Indicative of how closely you're following God's word. 70 plus percent of the United States declares to be, claims to be Christian today. Isn't that wonderful? Is it true? No. No. Less, listen to me now. Less than 10% have a biblical worldview. The overwhelming majority of those who claim to be Christian, it's a smorgasbord of belief. It's a combination of a number of things. But it's a God of their own understanding, not the God of the Bible that they're worshiping. But we, we who call ourselves Christian, we who are the body of Christ, need to follow him and his word as closely as possible. Because we will be rewarded based upon how we have been obedient to his word. Would you like to be rewarded? Yeah. And the privileged positions that he gives you there will be determined on how closely you're following and obeying him here. Do you understand that? Is that true? Is that, is that not true? Yeah. Based upon what? The word of God and Jesus taught in the parables of the kingdom. That if you're faithful with a few things, I'll give you responsibility over many. If you're not faithful to what you do have, well, maybe you'll just be a doorman or a kitchen servant. <laughs> but I'd like to hear those words, well done, good and faithful. Faithful. And, and that's what's required of us, that we would be found faithful. Faithful to his word. Not to what I think it says, but to what it literally says. But I have a responsibility to know what the word of God says. Hmm? Back to Zechariah, chapter 14. Five B, thus the Lord my God will come with all of the saints 
And it shall come to pass in that day, the day of the Lord, that there will be no light. The lights will diminish. It shall be one day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening time it shall happen that it will be light. Turn with me to Isaiah 60. Isaiah 30, excuse me. Isaiah chapter 30. While you're turning there, once you get to 30, go to 60, keep your finger there. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was out for him. And void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God hovered all of the face of the waters. And then God said, Let there be light. But literally, literally, in the Hebrew text, all he said was, Light be. And what was that all about? Listen now, he hasn't created the sun, or the moon, or the stars. The cosmos hasn't been created yet. That's not to occur yet, but he said, light be. Who, what is that all about? Jesus. Jesus, the light of the world. It was Jesus who came, came forth at that time. Not created, forever was, always will be. Go back to Isaiah, what did I say, Isaiah 30? I lost my place. Bear with me. Bless you. Isaiah 30, verse 26. Moreover, the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun. The light of the sun will be sevenfold. As the light of seven days, and in that day the Lord binds up the bruise of his people, he heals the stroke of their wounds. Look at Isaiah 60 now. Go to verse 19. Anybody have a heading over 19? Yeah, what did you say? Everlasting light. Everlasting light. What did you say? God the, God, the glory of his people. Look at verse 19 now, Isaiah 60. The sun shall no longer be your light by day, nor the brightness shall be the moon give light to you. But the Lord will be to you an everlasting light, and your God your glory. Your sun will no longer go down, nor the moon withdraw itself. For the Lord will be in your everlasting light, will be your everlasting light in the days of your Morning shall be ended. Wow. In the beginning of Genesis, we see that Jesus comes as the light, the light of the world, the light of the universe. John starts out his gospel the same way, doesn't he? Go to John chapter 1. John's Gospel, chapter 1, please. 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shined in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There was a man sent by God whose name was John. This man came as a bear witness to bear witness of the light that was all that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light, that the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. Chapter eight, John's gospel. Jesus declares what? The woman is caught in adultery. Does Jesus want to condemn her? No, he wants to take her from darkness to light. He's going to translate her from the, from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the light of the Son of God's love. Look at chapter 8, verse 12. No, verse 11. She said, no, verse 9. <laughs> and they saw that no one but the woman was there. And the, Jesus said to her, woman, where are your accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall never walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Look at chapter 9, John's gospel. John is unique compared to the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Right, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all similar in what they share, just from a little bit different perspective. John, the gospel of John, 90% new material. John was written to, wait, to prove what? Jesus was God. John was written. Matthew wrote to prove that Jesus was the Messiah, the Mashiach Nagid. Mark wrote to prove that Jesus was the servant, the ox, the four faces of Ezekiel, four gospels. Luke was written to prove the humanity, the man. Behold the man. John was written to prove his deity, his deity. But John records, what did I say to go? Nine, chapter nine, verse two. Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sin, but that the works of God should be revealed. I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Now, Zechariah is declaring there's coming a day where there'll be no need for the sun or the moon. The moon will be like the sun. The sun will be sevenfold in its brightness. But where's this light coming from? How do you know that? Because it says so, right? Revelation chapter 21, turn there. In chapter 21. Look at verse 22. But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city had no need of the sun nor of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of the God, God illuminated it, and the Lamb was its light. And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day, there shall be no, need, no night there. 
And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations unto it, and there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles nor causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. That's the important book to you and I, right? The moon. Does it have any light in itself? No. Well, then why is it that the moon shines? It reflects the light of the sun, S-U-N, right? Do you have any light in yourself? No. Do you understand that? It's true. No, the only thing I can project is darkness. Darkness, the absence of light. But as soon as I allow the light in, what happens to the darkness? It flees. But my life, like the moon, is to reflect the light of the sun, S-O-N. You alone are the salt of the earth, Jesus said. You alone are the light of the world. Now the question becomes, are you? Are you really reflecting the light of Christ? Emmanuel, God with us. God tabernacling in us. That what should be coming forth out of our life is his light, his love, his life. And if it's absent, then you have to really wonder, do we even know him? John records of John the Baptist, he was not that light, but he came to bear witness of the light. What are we supposed to be doing? Bearing witness of that same light. And who should be illuminated by that light more than anybody else? Who should be guided by that light? Those closest to us, right? I should be receiving from the light that is in her. She should be receiving from the light that is in me. You should be receiving from the light that is in us. And you have to ask yourself the question, is that what's happening? Is that really what I'm doing? Or do I have one foot in the light and one foot in the darkness? Now, you won't stay that way for very long. No, you can't do that. Jesus said, of those who are lukewarm, you're neither hot nor cold but I will vomit you out of my mouth. You make me sick. You make me sick to my stomach. Can you imagine that? Jesus telling somebody, make them sick to his stomach where he's going to vomit them out. You make me nauseous. You're neither hot nor cold, but you're lukewarm. Half-hearted, double-minded. One foot in the kingdom, one foot in the world. It doesn't work that way. You're all in or you're not in at all. I wish that you were hot or that you were cold. Now, you know the situation there in the church that he was talking to. There was these hot springs and these cold springs there. And the, the hot springs were very therapeutic. As I'm getting older, you know, I get POD. What's POD? Pain of the day. Every day I wake up with a different pain. And boy, do I like taking an Epsom salts bath and soaking that hot, hot water. How I can stand it. Just take all that pain away. It is so therapeutic. I think I'm going to go now. Is that not true? That's where we're to be for other people, therapeutic. Warming them, healing them, encouraging them, comforting them. I wish that you were hot or that you were cold. What is cold? It's refreshing, right? You're refreshing others when you get hot and sweaty and you've labored hard and there's nothing like a, a cold drink of water, right? Or a cold shower. You've been so hot. Are you therapeutic? Are you refreshing? Or are you lukewarm? Nobody would even know. 
you have absolutely no effect on anybody's life for good, for Christ, for the gospel. That's what he's talking about here. Back to Zechariah. Jesus is the light of the world. He's that light that wants to be in your life, illuminating you. Verse 8, and in that day, the day of the Lord, it shall be that living waters shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them towards the eastern sea, that's the Dead Sea, half of them towards the, Medi the western sea, that's the Mediterranean Sea. If you want to invest in property right now in real estate, invest in property around the Dead Sea, because very soon you'll be able to construct a marina. It's going to be alive with fish, life. Ha, 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 ha. It's supposed to say it funny, funny, yeah. The... Uh, some of the oil fields that were discovered in Israel, tremendous reservoir, more than in Saudi Arabia. Do you know how those exploration companies found that oil? Yeah, where in the scriptures? Yeah, where in Genesis? Yes, that's exactly right. Genesis, when, when Jacob is blessing his sons, Asher said, you're going to dip your toe in oil. They went to the territory that was Asher's, and that's where they discovered these oil reserves. Wow. So invest in real estate around the Dead Sea. You're going to be a rich man. Yes, half towards the Eastern Sea, half towards the Western Sea, both in summer and winter it shall occur, and the Lord shall be king over all the earth in that day. It shall be the Lord is one and his name is one. Hallelujah. Talk about unity, right? The world can't produce unity. Men can't produce unity. We can't even have peace in our families, can we? No, not without the Lord. The Lord is the one who brings that unity. And just as the church were to maintain the unity, he's already created in the bond of peace through the Holy Spirit. Do you have that living water flowing in you? That water he's talking about. It goes from the Dead Sea. Why is the Dead Sea a Dead Sea? There's no outlet. There's no outlet. It's got an inlet, but no outlet, right? That's a lot of Christians too, isn't there? Oh, they have an inlet. They want all that God has to offer them, all that the church might have to offer them, but, but there's nothing going on outside of their life. There's no outlet. You know, you've got to have a Paul, but you also have to have a Timothy. A Timothy. You've got to be receiving from the Lord, but you also have to be giving. And you can never exhaust the supply that God wants to give you, whatever that provision may be. Ever. As long as you're willing to give yourself away for Christ, you get more and more and more. But there are far too many people who have spiritual constipation. They're like the Dead Sea. They have an inlet, but no outlet. I'm always excited when someone new comes to the chapel and I say, you know, I want to share with them my story. And then here's what, what can I do to help? Is there anything at all I can do to help? Wow, that's a noob. You know, you know how rare that is? Why? Because most of the church in the West are just spectators. They're like the Dead Sea. They receive and receive and receive, but they don't give. Not you. I'm not talking to you. It's all the people over there. You're, you're listening to me, right? On the internet? Okay. <laughs> yes, the Lord is one. His name shall be one. Verse 10, all of the land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Rimmon, south of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be raised up and the inhabitants of her, in her place from Benjamin's gate to the place of the first gate to the corner gate from the tower of Hanel to the wine to the king's wine press. All the people shall dwell in it. No one shall there be 
excuse me, no longer shall there be utter destruction, but Jerusalem shall be safely inhabited. Wow. What's he describing there in verse 10? He's describing the entire borders of the city, the northern border, the southern border, the eastern border, the western border, all of the, all of that God has promised Israel they will occupy. And no more destruction. They'll live in peace and safety for how long? Forever. Forever at this point. Wow. Unlike today, hmm? Now he's going to go back to those nations that have come against her. And that day all the nations of the world will be against Jerusalem. All the nations of the world will come against Israel. Verse 12, he says, This shall be the plague with which the Lord shall strike the peoples who fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh shall dissolve while they stand on their feet. Their eyes shall dissolve in their sockets. Their tongue shall dissolve in their mouths. Have you ever seen that before? You have where? Hiroshima. You saw that? No, no, no. You ever see that happen to anybody? Raiders of the Lost Ark. All you got to do is watch the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark, Indiana Jones. Now, they, they, got, that, they got that understanding from the scripture here. That, that this, this, this attack that occurs will be such that men will be standing, that the armies, the armies against God, that their flesh will melt from their bones, their tongues will melt in their mouth, their eyes and their eye sockets before their bones even hit the ground. Mamma mia. That's Italian for wow. You know? <laughs> what is he describing there? And more specifically, it's a neutron bomb. A neutron bomb. The United States decided we won't develop a neutron bomb. Do you know that? It's just, it's just too hard, too destructive. We're not going to develop it. There's only two nations in the world that have a neutron bomb right now. You know who that is? Who? Israel's one. And Russia. Israel and Russia, the only two nations. Isn't that interesting? Now, where would you go? What battle would you look at to see that this kind of a situation is actually going to come about? Where they can't even go into the battlefield for seven months. And after seven months, they'll go into the battlefield, and then they have to mark the remains, those that are disintegrated. And then they have professional barriers who come behind the markers, and then they have to take care of the remains in a very specific way because of the radioactivity. Where would you find that? Isn't that amazing? Ezekiel 38 and 39 describes precisely what's going to happen. This is a parallel passage here. It's thermonuclear war. Now, who does this, this, this fire and brimstone rain down upon? Gog and Magog and the armies who are with him. And who else? You don't know? We'll come back tonight. We'll talk about it. You don't know, really? You've got to read Ezekiel 38 and 39, and then come back and we'll talk about it. Yes, this is the plague, and this plague not only hits the people. Look what it says, verse 13. It shall come to pass in that day that a great panic from the Lord will be among them. Everyone will seize the hand of his neighbor and raise his hand against his neighbor's hand. Judah will also fight against Jerusalem. And the wealth of all of the surrounding nations shall be gathered together, gold, silver, apparel, in great abundance. Israel will gather together the riches of the Gentiles. The righteous, right? The wealth of the wicked. So the Bible predicts. But he goes on to say, look at this, in verse 15 in particular, such also shall be the plague on the horse, the mule, the camel, the donkey, and on all the cattle that will be in the camp. So shall the plague be. Wait a minute. It's, it hits man and beast, every living thing. 
Why? That's what a neutron bomb will do. What does the neutron bomb not affect? Buildings. Yeah. I, I, when I worked for GE, I was with GE 27 years, and the last uh, uh, CEO of GE was, was um, oh gosh, what was his name? Um, Jack Walsh. Jack Walsh. But we nicknamed Jack. It was Neutron Jack. You know why you called him Neutron Back, Jack? He got rid of all the people, left the building standing. <laughs> when he decentralized, you know, I worked in a plant. There were 30,000 employees. By the time I left, there were less than 4,000. But the buildings were still there. And they didn't like that nickname. So shortly after that, he leveled it all and became a park. <laughs> Neutron Jack. You kill all the people, leave the buildings standing. That's precisely what he's describing here. Now, did we ever, ever, ever before have the technology, the ability to do what the Bible is describing here? No, no, no. One of the greatest signs that we are in the end times is technologically. This is the first time in the history of man that we have the technology to do the things that the Bible predicts are going to be done in the last days. Could have never been done before. What are some of the other things, for example? The whole world sees it. The two witnesses. Who are they? Moses, I think it's Moses and Elijah, right? Well, we know for certain one is Elijah, because scriptures tell us that. We just don't know who the other one is, but I think it's Moses and Elijah. Why do we say that? Because they, they were the representatives there at the Mount of Transfiguration, right? On the Mount? Moses and Elijah, what they represent? The law, right? The moral and ethical purity of God and the prophets, right? Yeah, Moses and Elijah. What else? And the whole world sees that. Worldwide communication and the travel, which we, the speed and the rate at which people travel today. It's unbelievable. A hundred years ago, most people were either walking or on horseback, right? Not today. It's amazing. You can have breakfast in New York. You can have dinner and uh, lunch in Europe. You can have dinner in Asia. All in the same day. Fascinating. Never before. One of the signs of technology. But there's so many signs indicating that we are in the last days. Yes, verse 13, it should come to pass in that day that a great panic from the Lord will be among them. Everyone will seize the hand of his neighbor and raise his hand against his neighbor's hand. What's that? What's happening there? What has God caused? Confusion. Is it, now, has he done this before? Yes, yes. He's, he's caused the armies of uh, the enemies of Israel to have confusion before where they fought one another. Then they killed one another. And Israel just stood by and watched. Well, isn't that an amazing thing? Well, that's precisely what's going to happen here. This, this madness is going to bring them to such confusion and madness, God brings them to, the fight, to fight at one another, to destroy one another. And verse 16, and it shall come to pass that everyone who is left among all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the king. Who's the king? The Lord of hosts. What does that mean? Lord of the armies, the mighty warrior, and to keep the feast of, ah, why tabernacles? I'm sorry? God with us, okay. What happened to the other two fall feasts? The other two fall feasts were trumpets and Yom Kippur. What happened to those two feasts? They're fulfilled. At this point, they're fulfilled. The church has been raptured, right? Israel's eyes have been opened, spiritually awakened, revived. 
And now, and now when the church comes back with the Lord and he establishes a millennial kingdom, the Feast of Tabernacles, how long is that going to be celebrated? Forever. Christ tabernacling with them. Forever. He's going to mention the Feast of Tabernacles three times. It's the greatest feast. It's the fall feast. Right? What are we looking forward to at the end of this month? By the way, by the way, Thanksgiving week, okay, there'll be no services here. From Monday to Saturday of Thanksgiving week, there'll be no services. Enjoy your family. Enjoy the holidays. It's the time when most people are traveling. But don't you love Thanksgiving? What do you love about Thanksgiving? Food. Yeah, food. Yeah. <laughs> I'm with you. <laughs> the gathering together, the family, the foods that we enjoy, the special foods that are prepared at that time of the year. And, and it speaks of the celebration from way back when, when Thanksgiving was first commemorated. Thanking God for all of his blessings because this time of year is the greatest harvest, right? For food. But it's all the greatest harvest as far as the scriptures are concerned of souls. Soul of the great harvest. Yeah, and there's a little harvest in the spring, Passover. There's another harvest at Pentecost. The great harvest is at Tabernacles. So he's talking about, he was going to mention Tabernacles three times now. Yes, and it shall be, verse 17 that whatever of the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, on them there will be no rain, no ability to feed themselves now. And if the family of Egypt will not come up and enter in, they shall have no rain, but they shall receive a plague with which the Lord shall strike the nations who do not come up and keep the feast of tabernacles, and this shall be their punishment in Egypt and the punishment of all of the nations that do not come to keep the feast of tabernacles. Now, why, why would uh, it not be necessary for it to rain in Egypt? They weren't dependent upon rain. Why? They have the Nile, the Nile River. Okay. But this time of celebration, the Feast of Tabernacles, what, what, what's really being celebrated is the Lord is with them. Do you celebrate the fact that the Lord is with you? P Peter made reference to this in his second sermon. You know, when... You, when before the Holy Spirit came upon Peter, he was always putting his foot in his mouth, wasn't he? The only time he opened his mouth was to exchange feet, right? He was always saying the wrong thing at the wrong time, wasn't he? But then the Holy Spirit came upon him at Pentecost. And then he gave that first sermon, right? Acts chapter 2. He gives the second sermon. Turn to Acts chapter 3 for a minute. There is something that I just, I always rejoice. It brings me great comfort when I read this. Because it's what's going to be taking place very soon. Um, chapter 3. A couple of times last week I referenced the fact that Jesus said... His people, or God said in Jeremiah that his people committed two great sins. What were they? No, no, that's the Gentiles. The Gentile sin. What, what is the great, two great sins that Israel has committed in Jeremiah? You have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and you've hewed out for yourself broken cisterns that hold no water. Now, why, why was it important in that part of the world to have a cistern? Because you collected rainwater because it was so dry, it was arid, it was desert. And you wouldn't, survive, you wouldn't survive the year unless you had a way of storing water. Yeah, you had to have a reserve of water. You can't live without water very long at all, can you? Maybe, maybe two weeks or nine days or whatever it is at best, right? 
But they had broken cisterns. And what happens when you have a broken cistern? The water escapes and leaches through the ground. And you will die. And who's that fountain of living water? Who's the light of the world? Right? Who should we be tabernacling with on a daily basis, walking with his spirit? Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, after you know, they healed the man who was lame at the gate called Beautiful. Remember the Corinthian gate? And he said, we haven't done this. The Lord Jesus healed this man, this impotent man who you see now stands all before you. But then he goes on to say, verse 17, yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance. Did what? Killed the prince of life. Killed Christ. Denied him. But the denial of Jesus Christ by Israel was predetermined by God, predestined by God. Why? For your salvation and mine. Isn't that an amazing thing? And now our salvation brings the Jew to what? Jealousy. It should. It should. But he goes on to say here in verse 17, Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did your rulers, but those things which God foretold by the mouth of all of his prophets, that the Christ would suffer, he has fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and be converted. Now he's asking Israel to open up their eyes and realize that Jesus is their Messiah, but they're not going to because God's put a veil upon them. But nonetheless, he says, repent, therefore, be converted, that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus Christ who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the restoration, until the times of restoration of all things which God has spoken of by the mouth of all of his holy prophets since the world began. What's he talking about there? What, is, what does Romans 8 indicate? What is groaning in Romans 8? Besides the spirit? Creation. Do you understand that paradise was lost? And we have no idea what paradise was like. We have no idea what this world was like, what God intended initially. But what Peter is saying here is that Israel, if Israel opened up its heart nationally to receive their Messiah to repent and, and claim the Lord as their own and surrender and yield to his will, he, the Father would have sent Jesus back to earth to establish his millennial kingdom, the messianic millennial reign of Christ. Aren't you glad he didn't do that? For your sakes and mine. But is he going to do that? Oh, yeah. I shared with you a couple of weeks ago that you, can't, you have no idea. There's no way for you to imagine, to envision the blessing that's coming our way when Israel accepts Jesus as their Messiah when they're finally awakened, if their rejection has meant your salvation, their acceptance before God, them being grafted back in the natural branch, coming back into the live olive tree, what's going to happen? It's like one coming back from the dead. Wow. And you will be out of your mind with joy. A joy that's inexplicable. It can't be explained. It can't be understood. It can only be experienced at this Feast of Tabernacles where Christ is tabernacling, dwelling with us. Let's finish the text quickly. Zechariah. Verse 20, in that day, holiness to the Lord shall be engraved upon the bells of the horses. The pots in the Lord's house shall be like the bowls before the altar. Yes, every pot in Jerusalem and Judea shall be holiness to the Lord of hosts. Everyone who sacrifices shall come and take them and cook in them. In that day, there shall be no longer a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. Hallelujah. 
What's he speaking of here? No defilement. No rebellion. No sin. No rejection. A Canaanite speaks of, of those who are in rebellion to God, who were defiled and, and would defile others. But here, everything is made sacred. Everything is blessed. Everything is holy. Why? Take off your shoes, Moses. You're on holy ground. Why? Because God was there, his presence. Why are you called saints, the hagios, the holy ones of God? Because of Christ, his presence in you. And so now worldwide, the whole world is sanctified by the presence of Christ. That holy light that has come into the world. You and I can't even imagine. Wow. Hey, hang in there. It's going to get a little darker before the light or the day dawns. It's just going to get a little bit darker. And now, now is the time for you to prepare. Listen to me. Listen to me. If you listen to me, you're going to be prepared. That day is coming. Ready or not, it's coming. But if you listen, you'll be prepared, and you're going to go through it like a lion. Right? The righteous will be as bold as lions in the day of adversity. But you've got to strengthen yourself. Here, in your mind, where people are losing the battle today is they're so weak-minded. You can't be weak-minded. What's the problem that's going on in the rest of the world, and particularly in, in, in the way in which uh, things are responding to in the Middle East? Everyone's acting out of their emotion, not their reason. Very important. Gird up the loins of your mind. Set your mind on things above where Christ is, not on things of the earth. Amen? Shall we stand? Pastor David, you got a closing song? Thank you for listening to this message from Community Chapel of Greenville. For more information and to find more messages like this, please visit to www.ccgreenville.org. It is our desire to see our Lord high and lifted up, and to see His people grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ.